Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope. I'm the editor and publisher of CJR, and The Kicker is our weekly podcast. Today we're looking at the coverage of Trump and the coverage of the campaign through an oral history that we ran this week. Um, we'll dissect how the press did and what they could do ne next and better. Then we'll look at trolls and how they've become to um, haunt uh, the news business. And finally, a little bit of a Thanksgiving treat, looking at what we're thankful for as journalists. Now I'm going to turn it over to Dave Uberti, the Kicker's host and a senior reporter at CJR. Hello, Dave. Hey there. How's it going? Uh, welcome back to the Kicker. I'm Dave Uberti. I am a staff writer for Columbia Journalism Review. Thanks for kicking it with us. We're excited to bring you another show today. Uh, I'm joined once again by Nausicaa Renner. She's an associate editor for CJR in the Tau Center for Digital Journalism. Nausicaa, what's up? Thanks for having me, Dave. <laughs> Happy to be back. Me too, me too. And also, I'm joined today by Pete Vernon. He is a Delacorte fellow for CJR, writes a lot for our site. Welcome, Pete. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we're back to it once more. Uh, you know, I wanted to start discussion uh, sort of with a big piece that we ran on CJR.org today uh, in, in partnership with The Guardian, which is an oral history of presidential campaign coverage. We talked to about 30, 36 or so journalists over the course of camp the campaign um, to get their thoughts about what went right, what went wrong, and where journalism should go from here. Um, I spoke to a few people, and it was, uh, you know, the equivalent, it seemed, to a uh, group therapy session in some senses. Everyone had a lot of feelings, thoughts, uh, a lot of stuff to vent about. Um, but, Pete, you did way more reporting on this to compile this gigantic work that is on our site and you all should read. So what were sort of your takeaways on, on some of the commonalities you, you heard and felt from the, the folks that you talked to? So many feelings. Um, we talked to people from, you know, the New York Times, CBS News, CNN, really covered uh, across the board a ton of different uh, outlets. And um, one of the big takeaways was frustration, I think, that they felt like there had been really good coverage, both of Trump and Clinton and that so much of the campaign ended up being focused on the horse race. How would whatever the news event uh, that happened to be occurring that day or week impact what was going on in the polls? And it just wasn't breaking through to real substantive context. Um, you know, it it seems like, as you said, it was a group therapy session in a lot of ways. Right. Uh, and and just having read through the you know transcript again, uh, I just feel I'm just struck once again by this feeling that nobody really knows what to do going forward. There's people are really at a loss because, as you said, there was a ton of great journalism this cycle in addition to a ton of bad journalism. But it seems as if, particularly with regard to President-elect Trump, feels weird saying that, uh, that none of the sort of accountability pieces really broke through. Um, so I think there's, you know, a lot of you know, sort of uh, soul searching insofar as, you know, what we think our role is going forward, if that should change with regard to a President Trump in particular, um, and if that should change, how exactly we should go about that. So I think last week I kind of waxed sentimental about journalism's role in democracy, as I want to do. But <laughs> I've been thinking over the past week about more specific ways that um, journalism and democracy are related and the ways in which that journalism can support democracy. Um, Jim Rutenberg had a piece in the Times this weekend talking about responding to Mark Zuckerberg's um, Facebook post about not wanting to be the arbiters of truth. And Rutenberg said, look, we're not the arbiters of truth. We're the, the defenders of truth. And I think that that's broadly true, but it feels like we don't know how to implement that. So I've been thinking about a few ways that journalists can actually start to um, – 
take concrete actions in terms of like working to promote democracy. Um, just a few ideas I'm going to throw out there. Now these are big ideas. Yeah. Truth and democracy. <laughs> We're going for it. <laughs> okay. First thing, um, journalism on social media has lost um, the ability to privilege certain pieces of information over others. So in the past, you know, the New York Times, like A1 meeting is like a famous thing of like, what are we going to put on the front page? When you see it in your Twitter feed, you have no idea how that information is privileged. So figuring out some kind of way to say like, this is the most important story you should be reading. You can read about Kanye West right now, but you should really be reading like David Farenthold. Second thing, how representative are newsrooms of the population? This has been a big discussion um, this election season with, uh, you know, like journalists are not representative politically or like ethnically of the populations that they cover. And I think that that will be a really big issue in the next five years of bringing more diverse voices because those are those outlets are the really successful outlets in terms of reflecting their communities. Uh, third thing, I wanted to give a shout out to Election Land, which was a project based at CUNY that where journalists, uh, I think it was something like 13 journalism schools, don't quote me on that number, um, around the country who were basically watching social media and seeing when people were having problems voting and what those problems were and trying to, on election day, actually go out and like help them get the right to vote. And so that kind of like studying of social media and like actively promoting people's rights is a, another way that journalism can support democracy. Yeah, I think one of the uh, the things that's really, really come to the fore for me during the course of this campaign with regard to social media is just the speed of it. I mean, like one of the reasons Donald Trump has been difficult to cover is that it seems like he has a different outrageous thing to say or a different scandal every couple of hours. So I feel like watching Twitter or seeing news come up in my Facebook feed, it's almost like I have whiplash just like going from one thing he says to the next. Like, what am I supposed to take away as being like the most outrageous thing that he said or like the most dangerous sort of political norm that he is obliterating? Yeah, I wonder if we'll try to slow the news cycle after after this election. I feel like that's fighting an uphill battle or like that, <laughs> that ship's already sailed. <laughs> right. um, yeah, Sopan Deb, who I talked to uh, from CBS News and who covered every Trump event and kind of was live tweeting his words as they happened, talked about that issue of saying, you know, we would break a story or he would say something that we considered ridiculous and it would be a big story for maybe not even 24 hours, for 12 hours. We'd report on a Tuesday night, and on Wednesday morning, he would put out a tweet attacking the New York Times, and there'd be a you know a news story, or he would tweet about uh, you know a former Miss Universe gaining weight, and all of a sudden it'd be on to the next thing. So this digging in on, on a big topic and saying this is a big deal. You know, we saw this this weekend mm -hmm. when there was a settlement in the Trump University suit, and twenty-five million dollars a president-elect settles doesn't admit guilt, as he makes clear, but <laughs> uh, you know you you don't usually pay out that much when you're completely innocent. Um, and that was lost in the hurricane of takes about Hamilton. Um, you know, and everybody loves Hamilton, I guess, uh, except for the president-elect. But um, And all of his supporters. Right. Uh, but that became the news story. And so we didn't talk about, you know, what was a really big deal. Right. I think, was, I mean, I think it's also a piece to, a, you know, a bigger problem. And to like Nausicaa's first point, this is something that I spoke about for our oral history uh, with John Dickerson about John Dickerson 
very, very cool guy and as eloquent as you would imagine listening to his podcast. Um, but he was saying sort of with regard to this idea of having a fact-based debate and what journalism's role in democracy is, is that we are almost facing a sort of existential threat in that Trump himself is something of a fake news machine. And he really prevents us from having an honest fact-based debate of, you know, day-to-day events in public life. And so I think that's really challenging for us. And it's sort of like, you know, this also touches on fake news and Facebook and how we distribute news and how we reach our readers, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the crux of the matter is sort of having an actual set of facts that we can at least agree on, or at least sort of a spectrum of truth. And, and Donald Trump is just so far outside the bounds of that on a very frequent basis. That's just really difficult to say what is up and what is down, what is left, what is right. There was a really interesting piece in, in uh, on the BuzzFeed website maybe yesterday about um, how all of Facebook's problems with um, editorializing and whatnot, like, basically started in 2012 when they um, started to try to follow news and a lot like breaking news and giving people like options for trending and sharing posts and that kind of thing that actually like basically making a connection between the fast news cycle and these like differences in truth that happen. So like, you know, what's reporters are pressured to put out a story. I think this is true not only in politics, but also like in uh, potentially terrorist situations where reporters are pressured to put out something, you know, less than an hour after the fact. But really, there's no we have no idea what the facts are at that point. And then they put out something else 12 hours later. But which one is true? Right. And this I mean, this gets to the point of, you know, social media as well. I feel like the take machine, whether that's via Twitter or whether that's just people who just write incredibly fast uh, opinion pieces after news breaks, it really sort of pressures journalists in some sense to like make these declarations regarding like if there is some sort of, you know, mass violence, whether it's terrorism or not. Like I feel like we are reporters who are trying to honestly have like straight down the line information are really pressured in some senses by sort of the the way people talk and share information on social media and sort of the, the, the hot take machine, if you will. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the Rutenberg piece as the idea of being defenders of truth. And I think one of the, the issues that this campaign has brought up is that we as a country don't have an agreement on what is truth, right? Like there are, this goes to filter bubbles and fake news and all of the things that have been bandied about in the last two weeks. But what is true to people that read the New York Times is not true to people that are sharing Infowars. Um, and, and so when we talk about journalists being the defenders of truth, you know, I, I just like who is doing the arbiting, I guess, is is part of um, the question. And like, are is there uh, an authority that anybody trusts, um, you know, or, or is it just that we're each, you know, this idea of you could, everybody's entitled to their own opinions, but not their own facts. Well, like, what are the facts that are right. being agreed upon? I, I, was, I was curious if, if you, I feel like, so I did a, a handful of these interviews for this oral history, uh, both opinion journalists and reporters and analysts. And to a person, you know, they all made the caveat when we were talking about sort of journalistic norms and truth and media criticism, you know, who you're actually talking about. And it seems like we've sort of like reached a tipping point of like journalists always like trying to qualify people's media criticism, criticism, like, oh, you're going to criticize us. What media are you actually talking about? Are you talking about CBS and the New York Times? Or are you talking about, I don't know, uh, Breitbart or even like reputable opinion uh, news organizations? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of confused by this whole thing because, I mean, I just saw this like Pew number that 59% of Americans want journalism to just be the facts. And that seems ridiculous to me because baked into good journalism is representing both sides. And so, like, there's already an agreement in journalism that there isn't necessarily a truth that you want to convey. Like, what what do people want? Do they want statistics? I I confess that I I read that stat and I just immediately thought that this was like one of those cases where people's stated preferences just does not match with their behavior at all. Yeah, exactly. Well, and this idea of both sides, like, oh, God, what like what is that? mean in terms of, uh, you know, some of the stories that we're talking about and the one uh, that never gets mentioned in the campaign, like, well, what about climate change? Does both sides mean we give equal time to the people that say the climate is warming and humans have an influence? And here's studied debate about how much influence they have and uh, what we can do to stop it. Or does it mean, will we give one expert who says, this is happening. And another expert says, no, this isn't happening. No, I don't think it means that you have to give equal weight or equal time to it. I think it just means that you represent the, you know, the electorate in some way. You you speak to the people at the level that they're at. And as I was saying about like A1 slots, it's like you privilege certain information. That's your job as a reporter. Right. You're always going to make be making those kinds of decisions. It's just about making people feel like they're being listened to at all. Right. I think that you know this obviously hits on a larger point as well. I mean, the climate change is a good example. I think right because you know knowing knowing your, the country is is a very important thing and it's obviously very hard to do. But if you're talking about cli- if a reporter is you know writing about climate change. They have to understand that, you know, someone in West Virginia might, in fact, believe in climate change, but still not care about some sort of response. They might think, you know what, we do have climate change that is partially manmade, but like my town is like reliant upon the coal industry. And that's like more important to me and my family right now. And that might I mean, that that's sort of isn't sort of like a counter argument as a scientific fact of, you know, manmade climate change. But I think it is important to take those sort of viewpoints into account when you're analyzing any issue. Uh, in terms of how you frame it and, and how you present it. Yeah. And I mean, this whole conversation we're having about truth and and reaching out to different sides of the electorate, uh, making sure that journalism is serving its function in democracy. Again, going back to this takeaway, the takeaways from this oral history, um, I can't help but feeling like everybody's just a little bit depressed and <laughs> uh, flummoxed about, well, what the hell are we doing? And what is the (laughs) impact of it? Um, I'm flummoxed. (laughs) All right, moving on to our next topic, trolls. Everyone's favorite topic, although there are no trolls in this room. Correction, everyone's least favorite topic. (laughs) Exactly. Well, at least I don't think there are any trolls in this room. Uh, I wanted to direct everyone's attention to this report that came out this week from Digiday. Uh, It was titled, Conservative Trolls Are Attacking Publishers' App Store Ratings. Uh, And here's the nut graph from the story. In the past couple of weeks, a number of prominent news publishers, including CNN, Mike, Quartz, and USA Today, have been hit with a flurry of one-star reviews from people claiming that the apps have a liberal bias. More than half of all the reviews CNN's app received this month in Apple's App Store were one-star reviews accusing it of having a liberal bias. This is an interesting development, and this is obviously sort of... 
a continuation of a lot of stuff that we've seen, particularly over the course of this campaign. Um, I feel like trolls initially became a big sort of meta storyline in the media with, you know, Gamergate in particular, mm-hmm. sort of a lot of harassment of uh, female journalists specifically. And that has certainly carried over and probably expanded over the last year or two. Nausicaa, this is one of your areas of expertise. <laughs> what do you make of this and sort of this broader question of how trolls affect our jobs and what journalism does? Yeah, I mean, I think trolls are so interesting. I, I think if we could solve the problem of trolls, we could solve a lot of the issues around this election. The Digiday story is is fascinating because it's an instance where this is it's it's more populist. It's not about targeting or harassing a particular person, but it's about harassing these news sites and and their products. Um, and I think, you know, as journalists, we've all experienced when you publish a story and then somebody comes after you and you get a billion notifications and you avoid looking at Twitter for a couple of days. And it's a it's a real tension between um, your the necessity of being on social media as a journalist for like your your company and for your personal brand and the vulnerability that it opens you up to. Um, in some ways, like, I mean, I, I would like to know what you guys think, but in, in some ways, I think that this is sort of a, a, a tension that is all over the Internet in terms of, you know, the Internet's original, like some of the original fantasies about it as this like anarchist, like libertarian space. Yeah. And and whether or not that is really, um, you know, we've been talking about a lot about democracy, like is this kind of libertarian space really compatible with democracy? And do trolls end up, you know, is it is it about their free speech or is it about the free speech of other people and how much they sort of uh, suppress that and how much is regulation really necessary to encourage free speech? Right. I think, uh, I mean, there's like an important distinction to be made, right, which is that, you know, it is good thing, I think we can say unequivocally, that like people can go into the app store and say, CNN has a liberal bias. This is trash. I'm giving you a one-star review. Right. Good thing. When you know hundreds, if not thousands of people all happen to team up at the same time and don't give like sort of like substantive p- feedback, it's clear that they're just trying to game the system in order to hurt CNN. That's more of sort of like mob mentality than it is people, you know, giving sort of a reasonable um, complaint about a certain journalist or news organization. Right. It stops being like actual protest and starts just being... Yeah, it's, vindic- like, it's vindictive yeah. in some senses. And like with the Gamergate phenomenon, I mean, like there might have been sort of like the the germ of a an okay critique of gaming journalism at the start of Gamergate, but it just metastasized into this gigantic amorphous thing that nobody could really control and no, nothing that you could do could like ever possibly satisfy these people. Well, it goes to this idea, uh, you know, speaking about tying threads together, the uh, role of journalism in democracy and um, just what is kind of, I mean, in some ways, what are the downsides of democracy? Not to uh, make it too meta. <laughs> Whoa, but, Pete. Um, There's no downsides. <laughs> I mean, uh, one of the things, one of the, uh, again, tying back to the oral history, uh, Jonah Goldberg from National Review um, quoted Alexis de Tocqueville, the uh, French aristocrat who toured America in the 1830s and wrote about his observations of this new experiment. Um, and he talked about he warned about the tyranny of the masses, kind of 
saying the sort of thing that we are maybe discussing here, this idea that when you do get a group together, an association, whether it's trolls uh, attacking specific writers for their video game coverage, whether it's what we're seeing in some ways growing out of that, of the 4chans uh, and the rise of the alt-right, this small group of people that is getting an outsized amount of attention. And uh, and Facebook has played a huge role in that in terms of being a microphone. My favorite topic in the past week is how Mark Zuckerberg's like ideal uh, ecosystem has actually ended up backfiring on him so much because of these like these libertarian ideals that then just get co-opted into something like tyranny of the masses where you you want to privilege like individuals voices but that also opens up the space for things to go viral. Yeah, and it sort of gets to like the the larger problem of like filter bubbles as well. I mean, like tyranny of the masses, if we're talking through like the prism of social media, that could just mean like you and your extended network of followers or people who are following you or people who are following your followers. So I think like a lot of these sort of big themes are, you know, really coming to the fore now. And uh, journalists are finally... I think I feel like journalists in many ways, because we do have to be out there, we have to be on social media that's required and it's good for our readers to be able to engage with them. But it also exposes us to some of that. So um, so hopefully we can figure it out. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I would really like to see newsrooms end up developing some resources for their employees in terms of guidelines of like when they should and shouldn't be on social media and and support within the organization. And, you know, because when you when you get a message from a troll, that's like your entire premise has been destroyed. You should take this piece down. As a person, you're like, wait, should I? Like, and and journalists shouldn't have to like make that assessment by themselves. They should have like the institutional support to be confident in their work. I think this election, this uh, whole campaign season, has you know really crystallized trends that have totally been emergent. We mentioned Gamergate, which goes back a few years, um, but ne- when it's played out on a national stage with global implications, um, it it kind of has thrown all of us into this um, mode of stepping back and saying, wow, what's really changed here? And that you mentioned like the privileging of individual voices. Um, And I think that's one of the big questions, like, you know, how much, uh, (laughs) to take a big word, how much democracy uh, of like the platforms, when you have a, a story on Facebook from the New York Times that looks exactly the same as a story from some random, you know, Macedonian teenagers and they're, uh, you know, putting stuff up that is blatantly untrue, but they look the same when you share them on Facebook. Um, That's a democratization of information. uh, And we're all kind of struggling, okay, how do we show people what is and is not true? Um, Whose voices, you know, are we listening to when it comes to, like you mentioned, Noska, there are reporters should respond to valid critiques of their work and we want our audiences to feel like they have a voice. Um, When you get an unnatural uh, mob mentality um, that is totally intended just to vilify, to scare, to terrorize uh, a journalist, whether it's um, an individual journalist or an organization like the Digiday article you mentioned, we're just we're in a whole new playing field, and I think right. we're all struggling to come to terms with that. I wanted to just jump back. So you mentioned the BuzzFeed article about Macedonian teenagers who are sort of mass producing fake news on Facebook, and this this sort of I mean, like I've been in La La Land since this election. I don't know 
I, I feel like I'm becoming sort of conspiracy theorist light in some <laughs> senses. I'm trying to fight off the urge. But I've had sort of like a working theory from a long time for a long time, and I'm curious what you guys think of it, which is that, you know, with trolls, I mean, a lot of these people are just trolls. Like they, they might, for, for all we know, they might be 16-year-old kids in their parents' basement in, you know, Iowa trying to piss people off. I know I said some stupid shit when I was growing up, and I, I would probably go out of my way to make fun of people. And this is sort of a continuation of that. It could be a continuation of that in some senses. We really don't know so who these people saying, are. So what you're saying is teenagers are really immature. <laughs> the problem is teenagers. <laughs> That's what I'm saying here. There's a reason they can't vote till they're 18. All right, moving on to our final topic. We're recording this on Tuesday afternoon. Um, we are all about to head home to our respective families for our Thanksgiving gatherings. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I'm going to be sitting around the dinner table with my extended family, uh, eating mashed potatoes and gravy, um, being thankful for the Detroit Lions, um, and also probably enduring some withering assaults on the efficacy <laughs> of journalism and the biased, dishonest, failing media. <laughs> so in order to counter that, I'm curious what you guys are thankful for this Thanksgiving as journalists. Give me some of your reflections on 2016 and what you're happy about going forward. Well, I know that this is slightly self-serving, but I'm thankful for editors. I think that you know, before and after the election, there's been a lot of focus on reporting and investigative reporting and going out into the field and talking to actual Trump supporters and how we need to do more of that. Um, you know, we've been talking a lot about in this podcast about privileg privileging certain information and making decisions about what needs to be included in stories and, you know, having your newsroom support you and vet your work. And I think there's been some incredible editing this election season and in my darkest of minds I think sometimes about how Trump himself would be just like way better if he had an editor <laughs> because <laughs> he's always going Conway's there for. <laughs> he's always going back and forth like he you know he needs a fact checker it's true like and it's all fluff <laughs> and I feel like if you could just like cut away a lot of the like bloviation, then like we would have even a, a much easier time as reporters covering what his actual views are. Donald Trump needs a nut graph. Yes. Pete, I know you are thankful for the Philadelphia 76ers trusting the process. Joel Embiid. <laughs> what in journalism are you thankful for this Thanksgiving? I, you know, we talked about this uh, yesterday and kind of went home with the assignment to think of. And it, like, I got to be honest, I, I really like struggle with this idea of what to be thankful about. We're in this period, as you call it, of group therapy, where everybody's kind of trying to figure out what we need to do next. You know, we, we have a couple days off, and I find myself slipping back into kind of the feelings I had right after the election, which are just depression. And I guess I'm thankful that we're going to have some time to step back, do some reading uh, of some great pieces that people are, are putting out, talking to those that have been impacted by this election. Um, both those that those type of pieces that are going out, speaking with Trump voters and trying to understand what we missed, um, but also pieces that are talking to people who are scared, um, who are frightened by what this new administration might mean for them and their families, for people who are immigrants, 
uh, Muslims, people of color, women, um, because there are a lot of people to whom this last two weeks um, has not been about reevaluating the business model and thinking of, okay, what should be done differently? They haven't gotten to that point yet. They're just worried. And I'm, I'm thankful that there's great journalists who are out there telling those stories. Dave? I guess I have a big thing, but also a little thing. I mean, just to your point, Pete, I remember riding the subway with you the day after yeah. the election. And we had this moment where we were like, what the hell are we doing? Like, we got, we obviously got the election so wrong, collectively, journalists, not Pete and I. We're no, perfect. We, we got it wrong, too. <laughs> uh, the public generally hates journalists. So what are we doing? Like, why, why are we here? What is journalism for? And I was, you know, really in a dark place about that. I'm a 25-year-old kid. I've always wanted to be a journalist. Really love doing it. I believe in it. Um, but over the last two weeks, what I've seen, which has been heartening, which, I've, which is what I'm thankful for, is sort of a gradual sort of increase in the resolve that is being shown by journalists who, are, who have been flummoxed over the course of this campaign. Donald Trump has a lot of very frightening authoritarian ideas or has at least publicly stated that he has authoritarian ideas, whether that's regard to the press or democracy generally. And if he turns out to try to carry those things through, sort of the media and his relationship with the media is going to be the tip of the spear of that conflict. Um, so what I've been really pleased with is to see gradually that journalists are sort of you know deciding that we need to fight against this. Like we need to sort of get on a wartime footing when it comes to Donald Trump and press access and media freedom and whatnot. Donald Trump had a on-the-record and off-the-record meeting planned with the New York Times. He tweeted this morning that he was canceling the meeting because somebody changed the rules or the parameters for this. The New York Times responded by saying, no, this isn't the case. They held firm. Uh, and essentially, there was a lot of immediate backlash, a lot of you know outcry from journalists and reporters and editors and whatnot. Uh, and eventually, Donald Trump decided that he was going to do the meeting. Uh, and he's, I think, right now en route to the New York Times. Um, and they didn't decide to go for an off-the-record meeting, which I think is a, a, it's a win, albeit a small win for journalism. But I think it's sort of emblematic of the adversarial – Exactly. The adversarial relationship we need to take about this. I mean, if we really – we've been telling people for the last year how important this is and how dangerous this guy is. So if he does try to do all this stuff that we said is dangerous and important – like, we really need to put our money where our mouth is in terms of, like, standing up to this guy with regard to press freedom, press access, and whatnot, and really being clear about what our both short-term and long-term goals are. Yeah, I mean, thanks. That was heartening. Uh, <laughs> I'm doing my best here. Yeah. I'm, I'm thankful oh. for you, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> but are you guys optimistic about where journalism goes right now, or are you pessimistic given that it doesn't seem like really good journalism um, had much impact. You know, people in the oral history said the reporting was there. People just chose not to listen to it. Right. I, I think Jack Schaefer said very memorably that people in America have the right to be idiots, <laughs> uh, which is That's a very true. crass way of yeah. putting it, but it is true. Um, but I, I guess to answer your question, I am optimistic in some senses, pessimistic in other senses. I think we're facing an existential crisis with regard to the financial situation of journalism. We're also facing an existential crisis with regard to covering politics in a way that will appeal or sway or at least inform a broad swath of American people. 
Um, but I do think sort of like the public reaction to the election uh, in terms of like subscri- people subscribing to a bunch of newspapers or donating to nonprofit yeah. news organizations, that's really cool. Um, and it, it's all, it also is heartening to see a lot of journalists like stepping up to the plate. Um, yeah. And I think that we just need to sort of press on with that, just continue forward. Yeah. I mean, reporters are people with a lot of stamina. And I, I think I have some faith in that. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I think we all got into this for the our belief in the power of words and stories to really matter. Um, you know, in a, in a big picture way, our stories are how we define our country and, um, you know, the the narrative that we tell ourselves about who we are. And it, it just seems like right now we're in a period of uncertainty about what story we're telling. Um, and if the the reporting we're doing, the stories that we're writing are really having an impact on that narrative. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think if, if what, what you're saying about the economic model, I think if news organizations are able to break away from some of the advertising that they've relied on and become more publicly funded or more funded by foundations that allow them, you know, editorial freedom, obviously, I think that will be only a good thing if 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 news organizations can break away from this, you know, what has only grown online in like the age of clickbait is just like needing traffic and needing um, eyes on the page for advertising money. It's like if we can break away from that, that will be incredibly good. Yeah, we don't we don't want to care too much about eyes on the page, but we do care about ears listening to this podcast. Um, so we're going to cut it off there. But before you go, please remember to subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave a review. I will love you forever. Uh, if you have anything you're particularly thankful for about journalism, tweet at us at CJR. Uh, I will make sure to tweet back at you. Um, and yeah, we will be enjoying the mashed potatoes in Turkey. Uh, I just want to thank my colleagues, Nausicaa Renner, associate editor for CGR. Thanks for joining us, Nausicaa. Thank you so much, Dave. And Pete Vernon, the guy from Philadelphia, Delacourt fellow at CGR. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for letting me be here. And I'm Dave Uberti of CGR. We will see you next week. Bye.